in the long history of the world, only a few generations have been granted the role of defending freedom in its hour of maximum danger. I do not shrink from this responsibility. I welcome it. I do not believe that any of us would exchange places with any other people or any other generation. The energy, the faith, the devotion which we bring to this endeavor will light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. The most memorable words from JFK's immortal inaugural speech from 1961. And this episode is coming out on the 22nd of November, 2020. 57 years exactly since the tragic events of Dallas in 1963. And the focus is going to be JFK's inaugural speech. My special guest today to talk about the speech is a Swedish-American academic at Harvard University. He's written an amazing book, came out this year. It's called JFK, Coming of Age in the American Century. And it deals with the years up until 1956. But before I get to Frederick Logerval and JFK and Ask Not, I will give a shout out to the good people at Greenskin and Purpleskin Avocados who continue to support the podcast. They are committed to finding the very best avocados and making sure that no bad avocados get through. I have them pictured like the nut room in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory with the squirrels sorting carefully. Well, that's what I've got in my mind when I picture the seasoned avocado professionals filtering and sorting and making sure that not one dud gets through to the end consumer. Greenskin and Purple Skin Avocados. You can find out more at greenskinavocados.com.au. And they're also on Facebook and Instagram. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields. If you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. Fraud, sham, and hypocrisy. Change within the system. The hollow man of anger and bitterness all must be left to a bygone age. I understand victory. I understand sacrifice. Speak over. I may not get there with you. And we as a people will get to the promised land. Well, may we say, God save the Queen. Because nothing will save the government yet. Speak Ola with Tony Wilson. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Speak Ola podcast. My name is Tony Wilson. And if you're coming across this podcast for the first time, the idea is we feature a speech each episode, play the speech at the end, usually in its entirety, and then speak to someone who knows a fair bit about that speech. Often it's the speaker, or it might be an academic, or it might be an audience member, or just someone who's in love with the speech. And it's been a lot of fun so far. This is our 12th episode, or is it the 13th? It's 12 or 13. And because this one's coming out on the 22nd of November, I thought the focus might be JFK, 
who tragically lost his life on the 22nd of November, 1963. It's 57 years now. JFK would be over 100 years old. I think he'd be 102. But he remains a figure of fascination and interest, even so many years later. And today we're going to talk about his most famous speech, the inaugural speech of 1961. And there's perhaps no man more fascinated with John F. Kennedy than his biographer, a man who released a book this year on JFK. His name is Frederick Logeval. He's a Swedish-American academic at Harvard University, and he is an expert on US foreign policy, in particular the Vietnam War. And he actually won a Pulitzer Prize for a book he wrote in 2013 called Embers of War, The Fall of an Empire and the Making of America's Vietnam. But in recent times, he's been locked away in the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library learning about this man's life and times, and he is having a full-blown crack at documenting the life of JFK. The first edition came out in 2020, this year, and it's called JFK, Coming of Age in the American Century, and it's an unbelievable book. I read it in advance of this interview, and it's an absolute gem. And Volume 2 that will cover the campaign for the presidency, the election of 1960, the inaugural speech, the eventful thousand days of the JFK administration, and then, of course, the tragic end in Dallas. He's a fascinating man. I heard his voice first on the Dan Snow History Podcast, one of my absolute favourites, and he was incredibly generous with his time, even as America's fate hung in the balance with votes being counted in Pennsylvania, Georgia, and Arizona. So here he is, Frederick Logeval, on JFK's inaugural speech of 1961. Speakola. Well, what a pleasure to welcome our next guest on the podcast, and it is Frederick Logeval. He is a professor at Harvard University. He is also an academic at the John F. Kennedy Center for Government at Harvard, and he's won a Pulitzer Prize. He won it for his 2013 book, Embers of War, and the subject that he writes about the most is JFK, um, who also won a Pulitzer Prize. That's right, isn't it? Uh, Frederick, you're both He's, on the same page there, very similar. Uh, uh, I guess you could say that. Yeah, he did for a, for a 1956 book. Uh, he won the 1957 Pulitzer. Uh, we can discuss whether he was actually worthy of that prize, but he did win in 57 for a book called Profiles and Courage about senators who showed, uh, in his view, political courage. So it doesn't sound like it's the greatest Pulitzer Prize winner in history. It sounds a little bit of a sort of smidgens of anecdote as opposed to sort of a, a heavy academic work. It was a little bit that way. I think there was some pressure put on the Pulitzer Committee in, in, the vol- in Volume 2 of my biography. Uh, volume 1 has now come out, but Volume 2, I'm going to delve into this controversy a little bit. I think it's fair to say that, uh, and I have high regard for the book, uh, I should say. I talk about it in Volume 1. I think it has a lot of contemporary resonance when he talks about what politicians need to do or should be doing in showing political courage. I think that's a very important message. It's just, as I think you were suggesting, Tony, it's just a little, it's a little thin to be worthy of of, of that kind of a prize. It's not a long book. Uh, It's a little anecdotal. 
but nevertheless, I think uh, an important book. And it is said that it was ghostwritten by Ted Sorensen, which which might become a bit of a theme of this discussion as well, because yeah. Ted Sorensen is this sort of titanic figure in his life, isn't he? Oh. As, as as a speechwriter, and obviously as a ghostwriter as well. It, he, it's really one of the great political partnerships in the twentieth century, and and uh, and I think that they just, as I say in the book, they just clicked from the, from from day one. And Ted Sorensen is that rare political creature in that he not only helped shape policy positions, which some aides do, as you know, but it's not very many of them who also then are crafting the articles, crafting the speeches that articulate those policy decisions. So he was doing both, and he certainly helped on profiles and courage. I think Kennedy's own imprint on that book, I should stress, was important. The suggestion by some people that, well, you know, it's just Sorensen, and, and it's a few academics who helped Sorensen. I don't think that's true. I think I show that, in fact, the broad arguments, the structure of the book, the architecture, those are all Kennedy's much more than Sorensen's. Sorensen was just too young to really be able to frame that kind of a book. But, as you say, remarkable figure in this story. Well, if we go back to the start, it's always interesting how a great speaker becomes a great speaker. Mm-hmm. And JFK, I think, now projects this sort of image of, of being erudite and intellectual and learned and knowledgeable about history, especially when we're enduring the <laughs> Trump years. Um, can, you tell us, mm. can you tell us about him as, as a student and, and whether this eloquence, was, whether there was a natural eloquence? You know, I don't think it was fully natural uh, in the sense that I think he worked hard at his craft. And when he first ran for Congress, which was in 1946, and he won, you know, uh, he he won that race. But very few people, I think, thought that he was particularly effective as an orator. He tended to speak too fast. He tended to have too high a pitch. And so it was really in the course of the 1950s, and especially after he became a senator, that he, he, he worked on, on slowing down because a lot of people had a hard time understanding him. He was talking so fast and speaking at a lower, uh, vol- a lower pitch. And in fact, interestingly, his wife, Jackie, who probably doesn't get enough credit for making him the politician he became and the orator he became, Jackie was among those who said, Jack, you got to slow down and you've got to try to, to lower how you're framing these things. It's really quite interesting. I would add, however, that your other point, uh, Tony, is spot on. He's a student of history from way back. He is, uh, in terms of the content of his speeches, that goes way back. And I think that's something that we should, we should note about JFK. But as a, as a public speaker, it happens a bit later, partly in thanks to Jackie and her coaching, if you will, or at least her, her advice. Well, that interest in world affairs, I mean, you talk about that in, in your book. The, in 1939, he was right at the center of world affairs, yeah. and, and he even had uh, a piece published, didn't he, about the, the build-up to it's, war and, and appeasement and all uh, that thing? I mean, this part of the book, I got to tell you, was so interesting to me to research. Uh, And I had a good sense of this story before I started, but here in terms of the evidence that's available, the letters he wrote, you know, the diary he kept, uh, this article, which was in the Harvard Crimson when he was an undergraduate. Yeah. I think one of the things that's striking about this guy is that he is, he's kind of a Zelig type figure in the sense that he's there as a young university student 
interacting with leaders when he travels through Europe in the lead up to the war. His father is ambassador to Britain, so his father helps make these connections. And Jack is absorbing all of this. He's already been interested in history and interested in you know, international affairs. Now he gets to see it up close. I think it has a deep effect on the person he becomes, the politician he ultimately becomes. Hence, I, do, I devote, um, as you know, uh, several chapters really to the World War II period. He also serves in the war, of course, but also this period leading up to U.S. intervention, which I think is a, a really fascinating part of the story. Well, it seems a, a little transformative to me because as an undergrad and even a grad student, he wasn't kind of standing out as mm-hmm. the smartest kid in America, was he? He, <laughs> no. he was he was sort of mid-class, wasn't he? He, it was, it was, he, he really was. Uh, you know, I think one sees, and you know, I have to be careful as a biographer because it's very tempting to see in this paper, you know, or that essay, seeds of future greatness. Uh, that can be tempting. I think it's it's problematic to say the least. And so I try to avoid that. I think the fact of the matter is, as you say, he was pretty ordinary. We see flashes in his papers of an intellect. He was a very smart fellow. Everybody could see that, including when he was kind of a slacker in, in, high, in, in prep school at Choate. You know, his teachers could see this is a guy with enormous potential. But he didn't apply himself very much. And, and at the beginning at Harvard, I think he was the same way. He was interested in girls. He was interested in, in sports. Tried very hard to become um, a, a star football player on the Harvard team. Didn't really work out. Yeah, you're quite right. It's really in his final year when he writes his senior thesis after this European sojourn, after this, this extraordinary trip. It's really then that he comes back for his final year writes this major paper, his senior thesis, that I think we be, we see the emergence of him as a not only a smart guy, but a dedicated person, somebody who really cares about this stuff and wants to apply himself. It happens pretty late. And then he serves and, and has a you know obviously a traumatic and probably life-changing experience at sea yeah. in the Second World War. That's probably the other great bit of dynamite under his life, isn't it? I think so. I think so. I mean, one of the things I suggest in the preface to the book is that for JFK, and maybe this is true for all of us, maybe it's true for you, maybe it's true for me, uh, or at least most of us, his teens and his 20s are absolutely critical, Uh, which is not to say that, you know, at age 29, he stops growing or stops developing. But I do think that that period before that, the decade or so prior to turning 30, uh, were of foundational importance. And yes, the wartime experience, he's in the South Pacific on a torpedo boat. He's the, the skipper of a torpedo boat, PT-109. He's in the, in the Solomons basically in 1943. And I conclude that the experience of seeing combat, the boat is, of course, rammed. There's a famous episode in which he then helps to save his crew. But I think the broader experience of being at war has two effects on him. The first is that I think it made him skeptical in a really interesting way. And I think he carried this right down to the end in Dallas, where he was assassinated in 1963, skeptical of 
the military instrument uh, and its utility in world affairs. And the second effect that I think his wartime experience had was that he came away convinced, notwithstanding the first conclusion, that the United States would have to play a leadership position in global affairs after the war was over. I think he felt pretty pretty confident by 1944 that the Allies would win. And I think he said, uh, and he said this in his in his initial congressional campaign, repeatedly, we are going to have to be a global leader. We're going to work with allies. This is not going to be unilateralism, but we're going to have to do this uh, in a way that we haven't before. And I think that too was a function of his his wartime experience. Well, a feature speech today will be the, the first, oh, I was going to say the first inaugural <laughs> speech, the only inaugural yeah. speech for JFK. But before we get there, and those themes, those themes are definitely picked up, but before we get to that, the congressional race, um, not, was that 1952? Sure. Is that when it begins? So at 46, he runs for Congress in the House of Representatives and wins yeah. and then serves three terms. Those, as you know, are two-year terms. And so House members, both then and today, they're always campaigning because it's such a short term. It's in 52 that he runs for the Senate and wins this epic victory against Henry Cabot Lodge Jr., and becomes a senator. So those are the two key races, really, 46 and then 52, until, of course, he runs for president in 60. And thinking about him as a speaker again, I dug up one quote. It was from David Powers, mm. who I think is part of the White House team once he becomes elected in 1960, but he's there at the start as well. Mm-hmm. And, and says that he organized a speech to gold star mothers, mm-hmm. women who'd lost sons in the war. And the quote was, you never in your life heard such a speech. He's jamming and whoring and and you'd need a pair of pliers to drag the next word out of him. And the women are all sitting there waiting to hear something and very little is coming out. And all of a sudden he says it, the right words come to him. And he says, well, I think I know how you ladies feel. My mother too lost a son in the war. Um, Does that tell the story that you found over and over, that that he wasn't a strong speaker? Yeah, I think it's true. I mean, I think Powers probably exaggerates maybe a little bit for effect, but I do talk about in the book how he was, was nervous in those early speeches. As I said earlier, he tended to speak too quickly. Uh, when he tried to ad lib, which is, you know, the seasoned politician knows how to extemporize, he usually got himself into all kinds of trouble. He was more comfortable, and this is interesting, from the very beginning, he was more comfortable on foreign policy. So when the speeches talked about, it wasn't quite a cold war yet, but there were certainly tensions with the Soviets. When he talked about tensions with the Soviets, when he talked about World War II and its effects, then all of a sudden he relaxed a little bit, he connected with people. But I think Powers is right, especially in the very first speeches. It could be, I think, by all accounts, almost kind of painful. The other thing that we should note, however, is that even in those speeches, and I think Powers talked about this, though it was not effective on a speech, you know, speech-making level, he connected with people. People liked him. This is something that you see. There's lots of evidence for this, that uh, there was something about JFK, even as a young emerging politician, that people came away from these events liking him. In fact, probably even his reticence, his shyness, his awkwardness, on some level may have worked to his advantage because he wasn't a slick sort of Boston politician of the old school. And, uh, you know, it didn't hurt him very much, even though he wasn't yet 
the kind of speaker that he would ultimately become. And when we get to the inaugural in 1961 and long before, I think he's a, he's a first-rate public speaker. When does he meet Ted Sorensen? And, and, and is there a bit of a, a meeting story? Is it a, is it a kind of a, a great moment? Uh, it's, it's a little bit of, of, of a mating story. I, he's, he's, he's hired by JFK as soon as Kennedy enters the Senate. So this is now early 1953. He interviews people for his staff. And one of the people he interviews is a, is a, you know, a young Ted Sorensen who's in his mid-20s. It's a remarkable thing to think about. Mid-20s from Nebraska, middle of the country, very liberal household, much more so than Kennedy's household. And I think one of the reasons why Kennedy hires him is he thinks, you know, to have a Midwestern liberal on my staff helping me with speeches and helping me with, with you know, formulating policy positions could be a good thing. I don't think he knew, Kennedy, at that point that Sorensen would be so magnificent with his words uh, as a kind of wordsmith. That was kind of a happy surprise. I, I'm sure he looked at some of, Ken- of Sorensen's writings, but there weren't all that many. And so I think it was more that he thought, you know, this is a guy from the middle of the country, part of a country I don't really know very well, from a progressive liberal background. That could work for me. And then there's an interesting point in their initial interview before Kennedy decides to hire him in which Sorensen, to his credit, this young pup, basically says this to Jack Kennedy. He says, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, let me ask you this, Senator Kennedy. Why were you not tougher on McCarthy? That McCarthy, of course, being Joe McCarthy, the famous red-baiting Wisconsin Republican senator who was close to the Kennedy family. And there's also the fact that JFK was concerned about alienating Irish Catholic voters in Massachusetts, many of whom supported McCarthy. But Sorensen wanted to know, you know, why didn't you do more? And Kennedy offered an answer. It wasn't a particularly you know, powerful answer, I don't think, but it was good enough for Sorensen to say, okay, I can work with this guy. And then, and then they became a team. I don't normally uh, locate the time of these interviews, but it's an amazing time right now. We, we are in the hours of waiting for <laughs> an election to finish here in 2020. Um, the campaign in 1960 was maybe not as drawn out as this one in terms of the count, but it, it is one of the closest elections yeah. ever. Yeah. Uh, how, did, how did that unfold? Tell us uh, briefly about the 1960 election. Well, it is. It's an extraordinary one. Uh, and of course, in volume two, which I'm now beginning to research and write, it'll be the, the key early part of that book. And I'm going to look closely at both the fight for the nomination, because Kennedy first had to become the nominee. Uh, and that's a that's an amazing story. He he takes on all comers in the in the Democratic Party, prevails, and then takes on faces off against Richard Nixon in the fall. Really close election, as you said, could have gone either way. Nixon is closing in the final days, partly because Dwight Eisenhower, the the current president, the outgoing president, at long last comes out and campaigns, uh, you know, strenuously for Nixon. They had a complicated relationship with the two of them. And, you know, Nixon, uh, Eisenhower was a bit tardy in, in, in campaigning for Nixon. When he does, it scares the, the Kennedy people because, in fact, you see Nixon's numbers going up. And then on the final day, it is really close. The Kennedy people, interestingly enough, 
thought that they would get a much more comfortable win. They knew that it had gotten tighter, but they did not expect that this would come down to, you know, a relative handful of votes in a few states, but it did. And it's an interesting contrast. You know, they're both young. People think of Nixon as being much older, but he was all of 47 and Kennedy was was 43. So they're both young candidates. The other thing I'll just say that's striking about that campaign is if you go back, which one can do, it's easy to do on YouTube and it's worth doing. You go back and watch their debates, which were earth shattering events. This was a new thing to have presidential candidates face off against each other. If one goes back and watches on YouTube, listens to those debates, I just personally, at least, I come away impressed. Uh, These are two guys who take the task seriously. They know policy. They've studied the policies. It's substantive. It's not to say there isn't some politic going on, but it's, it's got a very different tenor, shall we say, very different substance from the kinds of debates we've seen more recently, maybe especially, of course, this year. But I would say even as compared to the last few presidential elections, uh, I come away with respect, not only for Kennedy, but also for Nixon uh, in terms of wanting to speak to the issues, feeling okay to agree once in a while um, on on particular policy issues, and just uh, responding in really substantive ways. That's an interesting part of that campaign. It's something that really just has changed in Australia as well. Mm. There was this comfort at listening to detail yeah. that audiences had. They could sit down and listen to them talk about what they're going to do on this particular aspect of weapons policy. Yeah. They'd re- they really got into detail. Yeah. Audiences had a stomach for it still. Yeah, it's so interesting. And, you know, I'm originally from Sweden. And though I don't really remember some of this myself, my parents who have both passed, they used to tell me, you know, Swedish politicians, they would be in a, in a city park in Stockholm and they would talk for two hours to, to constituents uh, in detailed terms about policy issues where they would debate. They had, you know, they would actually have candidates who both appeared. And it's, as you say, Tony, it's a, it's, it's a different age, even if we can't and maybe shouldn't go back to that. I do hope, at least here in the United States, but, but perhaps elsewhere too, that we can get back I know maybe somewhere in the middle where we can have more robust and more serious debate on important policy issues that that we've we've gotten away from. Interestingly, those debates they're often said that the, the making of Kennedy because he just appeared better. He, yeah. he was maybe a little better looking. Yeah. Um, he looked younger, and he was probably styled a little better. And, and people say that Nixon didn't shave and didn't wear the right coloured suits. <laughs> Do you think all this sort of stuff was important? I think it. I think it did matter. Uh, you know, I don't want to exaggerate the, the importance of that fact, or even the debates. Not what, notwithstanding my emphasis on how extraordinary they were because this race was really close between Nixon and Kennedy before the first debate. And then after there were four debates, after the fourth debate, it was still really close. So, you know, in that sense, I don't think they were perhaps transformative, but the first debate in particular, which was the one that got the biggest viewership, it was the one where Kennedy really had to show a lot of people that he was mature enough he was poised enough, he was knowledgeable enough, and he did. I think that first debate 
where Nixon did not look good. He had been he had been ailing. He'd lost weight. His his shirt collar was too big for him. That first debate, I think, did a lot for Kennedy, and uh, and ultimately, I think, satisfied a lot of voters, Democrats, but maybe also some some Republicans. Yeah, this is a guy who was ready to be president, and I think that helped him. The debates helped him more than they helped Nixon. Nixon got better in debates two, three, and four, and arguably won two and three, and then uh, debate number four was kind of a draw in the in the estimate of most people. But it's also interesting to to note, which is often I think forgotten, that Nixon drew from that campaign the lesson that the debates had helped Kennedy. And in fact, in 68, Nixon did not debate. In 72, when he ran for re-election, he did not debate. We sometimes forget that the debates did not become regularized until 76, Gerald Ford versus Jimmy Carter. Nixon didn't want to have anything to do with him when he ran successfully for president and then for re-election. And that was in part because of his, his, his takeaway on what had happened uh, in, in 1960. Do you talk at all in the next volume about the, you know, the famous whispers of corruption around the Chicago race in 1960? Uh, Yeah. I mean, I, I need to, I need to, I need to do lots of research on that. Uh, My sense now is, uh, and we should note, of course, that even if Nixon had won Illinois, Kennedy would still have prevailed. So it's it's sometimes sort of the suggestion is made, well, there was corruption in Chicago and that won it for Kennedy. It's actually not true. Moreover, there were maybe shenanigans by the Republicans in downstate uh, in other parts of Illinois. And so it's hard, at least for me at this point, and I may not be able to get to the bottom of this. It's not the sort of thing where one finds a paper trail necessarily. But I need to look closely, of course, at what went on in the campaign and what kinds of tactics were used. For example, in the primaries, it's pretty clear that some money was distributed, especially in West Virginia, by Kennedy Kennedy campaign. It was fairly you know, standard practice in campaigns, maybe especially in that part of the country, for you know, little bags of money to be to be doled out. You know, some of that I think went on, and uh, it'll be interesting to see what I can discover about the fall campaign. What went on in Illinois? Maybe in Texas, Lyndon Johnson was the vice presidential nominee. It'll be important to determine uh, if I can what actually happened. It's interesting by way of contrast to think of the way that Nixon conceded. He was. He was reasonably generous, um, yeah. and certainly to listen to it today, <laughs> when we've got people screaming about being cheated, you know, miles before the end of the election. I mean, he was a, a positive gentleman. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in comparative terms, it's true. I will say, and again, here's this is something I'm going to investigate for volume two. But a preliminary answer, or a preliminary uh, point, rather, Tony, is that you know Nixon quietly, with a nod and a wink supported the efforts of Republican officials to question the results of the election. There were attempts at recounts in several states by Republicans. And though he you know, publicly took the high road and said, I don't want anything to do with this kind of thing. In fact, I think we have pretty good evidence that he was supportive of these efforts to try to undermine, wait, maybe try to reverse the result. And even if you can't 
reverse the result. You can delegitimize the incoming president before he really starts. That may be, by the way, part of the effort today that we're seeing, even as you and I speak on the part of Republicans, that even if you can't, even if Biden ends up becoming president, you can cast a lot of doubt about this whole thing. And that makes a difference when he becomes president. I think Nixon and the Republican Party sought to do something similar in 1960, even though, again, he professed you know, not to have any interest in doing anything of the kind. Those transition months are interesting every time, but back then it must have just been frantic, the sort of jobs they have to do. And the inauguration speech becomes one of those jobs. But give us an idea of, of what the transition was like. Yeah, I mean, I think today, you know, in more recent elections, more recent times, there are teams working on the transition behind the scenes months and months before the election which of course can be then obviously wasted work if, if, if the candidate loses. But you have to operate on the assumption that he or she will win. And so it's a much more elaborate process today than it was in 1960. Even in 60, Kennedy allowed himself in the, in the weeks, maybe even the months before the election, to begin to think about his team, who did he want in his administration, who should be in the cabinet. But the serious work begins right after the election, he then has, what, a couple months to do this. It's a much smaller government, a much smaller White House. You know, the, the, the White House staff has a few dozen people uh, on it, which is remarkable when you think about who toils in a, in a White House in, a, in, a, in the executive branch today, but still a lot of work. And so what happens in the course of the latter part of November and in December and then early January is pretty frantic efforts to put together the cabinet, and then at the sub sort of secretarial level, the other senior positions, mid-level positions in the agencies of government, that's a ton of work. And it consumes not just subordinates, but I think JFK himself for a good amount of time over the holidays. One consequence is that I think the inaugural address, absolutely remarkable speech. I think the lion's, the, you know, the biggest part of that work in drafting that address is really in the final week or so before the inauguration. They've been really consumed by other things, and much of the heavy labor is done really in the days prior. They're still tinkering with the thing almost up to, to the time that Kennedy delivers the address. I, th I think his care for the address is sublime. Like the idea yeah. that he was ambitious. He wanted it to be brilliant. He wanted it to be beautiful. Yeah. And I believe he sent Sorensen off to read every inaugural address Correct. and also to read the Gettysburg address yeah. and to, to work out why that worked. Is that true? Yeah, no, it's, it's absolutely true. I think he understood, you know, again, he's a student of history. I think JFK understood that an inaugural address can define a president not for his whole administration, maybe not even for a year, but it can define you for several months in the minds of not just Americans, but international audiences as well. What kind of a fellow is this? Is he an inspirational figure? Is he more ho-hum? Is he aggressive in foreign policy or is he more conciliatory? Does he have a sense of himself, what he wants to achieve? I think Kennedy felt that this was an unmatched opportunity 
this inaugural address to do this. And as you say, I think this is so interesting, and I'm really excited to to write about this in volume two. He sent Sorensen away to study past addresses. One of the things they learned from Lincoln, both Lincoln's second inaugural, but also the Gettysburg Address, is don't ever use a two-syllable word or a three-syllable word where a one-syllable word will do the trick. Never use two words or three words when one word will do the trick. That was something I think they, they took away from this, and they thought in particular that the Gettysburg Address, what is it, about 300 words maybe? was just an unbelievable effort on Lincoln's part, and they wanted to try to match this. One of the consequences is, in my view at least, that Kennedy's address also does not really have a wasted word. Uh, It's short. I think it's about 1,350 words or thereabouts, which is about half. 1,366. 1,366. (laughs) It's about half the length of most of the addresses of his predecessors much shorter. And even, I think, if I'm right about this, even Kennedy's successors have generally had significantly longer inaugural addresses. They pack a lot, he and Sorensen, with, by the way, some input from some others too, Arthur Schlesinger, John Kenneth Galbraith, um, the journalist Walter Lippmann. You know, they get they get input from a few others, but they pack a lot. Did, did Billy Graham? Billy Graham offered. Did Billy Graham help? Yeah, he did. He offered. Um, he at least offered some, uh, as you can imagine, some biblical uh, phrases. Some of that, I think, one or two of his suggestions made their way into the final draft. Some were left on the cutting room floor, but yes, Graham was also consulted. And so, do you have a sense of how this first draft happened? Was was it go away, Ted, and write the first draft, and then I'll get cracking, or was it? Um, I think more collaborative. Uh, than you that? know, this is a preliminary answer because I want to. That's a great one. I'm going to make a mental note that I want to really spend to spend time on that very point. My sense is that from the start, it wasn't simply you know Ted go away and work on this. It was here are the things that I want to see. Here's, here are the things that I want us to think about. I think that JFK, from before the first words are put on the first draft, Kennedy himself is invested in this, is involved, is thinking about, you know, here's what we want to do. We want to suggest that a new generation is coming into power in Washington. It should have a sense of idealism, a call to civic duty. I think that was, you know, that's Sorensen. But it's also, I think, from the start, Kennedy, Kennedy himself. And, and one other thing, you know, the speech is highly focused on foreign policy. There's almost nothing in there about domestic policy. That's pure JFK because Sorensen is not experienced in foreign policy. Frankly, he's probably not all that interested. He's much more of a domestic issues kind of a guy. So that very foreign policy thrust, I think, is substantially Kennedy's uh, himself. It's interesting, isn't it? Because we we have that line, the speech to such an extent becomes just the ask, not yeah, watch your country yeah. line. And yet, you know, that's the, the almost the only paragraph in the speech that is domestic. It's it's kind of, it breaks down sort of seven-eighths, one-eighths um, it, it, foreign domestic. It, it really does. And even that one, which is a remarkable line, obviously. And by the way, I suggest just parenthetically, uh, as I think uh, you know from volume one, that that notion, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country, 
That you see, not in exactly those words, but that you see in some of his very first speeches, 1946, long before Ted Sorensen is, you know, I think Sorensen's probably either in, in university or maybe even in high school. Kennedy is already basically articulating that view. Um, so it's interesting to see the, the uh, early, early articulations of themes that we later see in the speech. But yes, to go back to this point about domestic policy, it's interesting that the little that's in there was inserted right at the very end. There's a, there's a line in the speech that ends, there's a sentence that ends as follows. Those human rights to which this nation has been committed and to which we are committed today. Now, initially, the sentence ended there. And then they added on Kennedy's instructions, at home and around the world. So Kennedy was worried that the sentence as, a, as originally written, people would perceive it as meaning he was avoiding civil rights at home. And so he said, put that in there. Yeah. The other final thing I'll just say about on this, on this particular theme, Tony, that I think is really interesting is that Sorensen suggested the inclusion of one more sentence on, on the domestic side of things. And it was a sentence that went as follows. And boy, do I wish that Kennedy had kept it in. Kennedy struck it, but uh, I wish he had kept it in. The sentence was this. It was going to be a question to the audience. Are you willing to demonstrate in your life, in your attitude toward those of other races and those from other shores, that you hold these truths to be self-evident? I mean... It's just a, it's a marvelously written sentence. The cadence of that is, is, you know, it puts chills down my back. It's beautiful for reasons that I don't know, at least uh, as of yet, Kennedy struck it from the speech. Was it, was that in Sorrenton's book that that line got lost? Or how, I, I think, I, I think that? that I first came across it either in Sorrenton's first book, uh, that is to say, Kennedy is the title of that. Or in his memoirs, which he published not too long before before his passing, called Counselor, I do think I initially saw that in there. But you can also see it in drafts of the speech at the Kennedy Library. Um, by the way, the library is of course closed now because of COVID. But I can't wait to get back in there and get into those boxes, which are absolutely marvelous from a historian's and biographer's perspective. If you look at drafts of the speech, at least one or two drafts, that line is in there. And like I said, I just wish it had remained. He doesn't get great marks on race relations, does he? And, no. and that sort of a line would change the way that that's, history viewed him slightly. I think that's one reason I wish that, you know, apart from its rhetorical power, I, do, I wish in, in substantive terms for that reason that he had kept it in. I suggest in volume one that his record in Congress, both in the House and the Senate, his record on civil rights, his voting record, is actually very good. But it's also true that he was not, I think, until the last year of his life, 62, 63, I don't think he was really moved by the plight of African Americans. I think he supported... Uh, he wasn't, I think, personally uh, prejudiced, really. But I don't think he felt what it was like for African-Americans, the, the daily injustices that they suffered. That came pretty late. And so you're right. You know, for that reason, too, it would have been good to keep this line in the inaugural. 
Tell us a bit more about getting to the line, the inauguration day. I, yeah. I can't even imagine the sort of pressure that's going down. Um, where is the speech fitting in? Have you got any stories of rehearsal efforts or last minute? Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I think it's it's pretty interesting. There is a kind of frantic quality to this, and maybe this is true of all of these kinds of speeches. You know, I don't want to exaggerate the importance of this, but there is a sense that they're working on this right up to delivery. And, you know, there's a, there's, there are credible reports. I have no reason to, to, to doubt them that Kennedy himself, who, by the way, never really memorized his speeches, wasn't something he liked to do. And he became really good at delivering speeches. So there was no need to memorize them. But he was at the breakfast table the morning of the inauguration, reading parts of the speech. You know, he had it next to him with his, with his breakfast reading parts, uh, re-reading them, making sure that he got the sort of rhythm right. And I mean, to, to have been a fly on that wall uh, and to, to hear him do this would have been amazing. The other thing that I think is pretty remarkable is that he dictated parts of the opening of the address, the opening section of the inaugural address. He dictated to his secretary, Evelyn Lincoln. She was, she was taking notes and they were on board his aircraft, Caroline, and Kennedy was dictating to her just in the days prior to, to the inauguration some passages. It suggests, again, that I don't think we should understate his own sort of central involvement in this and his own insistence that they produce a speech that is spare, that is elegant, where there's not a word wasted, that even if it doesn't quite match, say, Roosevelt's FDR's uh inaugural, his first inaugural, really, uh, Lincoln's second, it's right up there uh, with the best speeches. And I think that's substantially due to Kennedy himself. Getting to the speech itself, Frederick, can you take us through it, you know, step by step, paragraph by paragraph, um, the, the content, the way it was delivered, the way it unfolded? Yeah, I can certainly say a few things. And maybe the first thing to say, which is, I think, to me at least kind of interesting, is that it was in keeping with other Kennedy speeches in keeping the phrases and the clauses short. This is something that he had already basically decided that he wanted to do in previous speeches as a senator in the campaign speeches. He had said to Sorensen and others, I want to keep the clauses and the phrases short. I want to use short words whenever possible. That was another instruction of his. He had learned, I think, earlier in the 50s that neither he nor anybody else uh, is as effective when they use longer words. They also determined, I think, that they would not use, and this was Kennedy's own uh, instruction, they would not use the first person pronoun. It was much better to use we, Kennedy said, than to use I. And finally, by way of sort of sort of an introductory comment, I guess I would say he wanted to, at least to some extent, Tony, uh, draw on his own experience. He thought the speech would be more effective, would leave more of an impression with listeners, not only at home but abroad, if it made close ties to what he had seen. You know, there's the phrase tempered by war. So he wants to he wants to remind listeners that he is a veteran of the Second World War to suggest that he had done a lot of traveling as a young man, and subsequently, a lot of global global travels. As I suggest in volume one, he's got a kind of international sensibility. And I think he says, 
when they're drafting this thing that that's got to be reflected in the book. It is interesting, though, that he doesn't do the Barack Obama thing, the kind of folksy storytelling no. thing. That's that's not sort of part of the Kennedy style. It, it's it's much more formal and clean as, as a type of oh, language. I think that's a really interesting point, actually, Tony. I think you're right about that. I don't know that I personally have made that connection or that comparison. Obama, of course, thought of himself, wanted to be a kind of Kennedy-esque figure. And in fact, there are some interesting similarities between them. A kind of cool, graceful persona uh, and demeanor that they have in common. A a certain wit. um, They both have a really good sense of humor. Conan O'Brien, the comedian, has written quite perceptively about this. He said, you know, we've had exactly two really funny presidents in our history. Abraham Lincoln and John F. Kennedy. And so that Kennedy sense of humor, you know, is is distinctive. Not so much in this speech, though. As you say, it's a clean, it's a sober speech. It doesn't have that that sense that Obama to some extent gives. But here's a passage that I just absolutely love. And I think it speaks to what we're describing. There's so many we could pick out. But when he says, this is toward the end, this is a part of the speech I think that doesn't get as much attention. And we can talk about, I think, a misreading of the speech, if you want to, which is that I think it's been remembered as a kind of Cold War call to arms. And I don't think it really was. But here's toward uh, in the latter part when he says, so let us begin anew, remembering on both sides that civility is not a sign of weakness and sincerity is always subject to proof. Let us never negotiate out of fear but let us never fear to negotiate. That's a kind of classic Sorensonian. Sorensen often did this in, in, his, in his writing for Kennedy, you know, a repeating of phrases and then sort of inversions where he thought that they would work. So I, I, I detect here, haven't verified this yet, I hope to be able to do so. This is probably Ted Sorensen speaking, but it's really powerful. Oh, it's beautiful, isn't yeah. it? And as you say, it's 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 not hawkish. It's not no. kind of looking for to press the button and to invade the next country. It's it's the opposite. It, it's true, and I think we have overinterpreted we being historians. Uh, maybe I've done this in my teaching with my students. I think we've over or we've overquoted the famous line. You know, we shall pay any price. We shall bear any burden. Meet any hardship. Support any friend. Oppose any foe to assure the survival and the success of liberty. Powerful words. But in fact, it misses the degree to which I think the speech actually was quite conciliatory. And you know, if you go and look at newspaper accounts of the time, pretty fascinating to see how reporters the day after the speech, and maybe the day after that, how they described it. It wasn't hawkish. They were, I think, much more inclined to see it as a maybe a middle-of-the-road speech in foreign policy terms, maybe more on the conciliatory side. So I think it's it's in history that we've mis, we've misremembered it to a certain degree. You mentioned that both Nixon and Kennedy were young men yeah. in this campaign, and he, and he definitely wanted to make that point, didn't he, to say that he was the new generation oh. and this was a presidency that would appeal to the, the, the post-war kids. Oh, yeah. And just the way he, 
you know, the way he was able to appear. There had been a, 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 a snowstorm. And the weather the weather had been really problematic for them. But you have a dazzling combination of, of bright sunshine when he delivers this thing, deep snow, and then this youthful figure. You know, he just cut a, a, an ex, a kind of an extraordinary image, I think, for people both here and abroad. And just to once again allude to my native country, my parents, you know, telling me about how maybe not live, although maybe it was, I'm not sure, but how Swedes were able to watch this young, handsome politician give this address in this extraordinary setting in Washington, D.C., on a beautiful day with snow. And it was just mesmerizing for them. Uh, and I think for many other Swedes, combined then with the actual words that he delivered and the fact that he did it in 1,366 words, um, it's amazing. And there would have been, I can't even imagine how this would go down now in the era of smartphones and social media, yeah. but Frank Sinatra and about a thousand celebrities were organizing balls and dances and, and other events. Yeah. And he was out all night at various <laughs> of these, wasn't he? Or was that the election night or was that the um, inauguration the, the, those, day? Those, are, those balls are the night before. And, uh, you know, he's, uh, he's, um, he's going. Uh, and Jackie, uh, after the first one, I think she says, you know, I got to go home to bed. But he continues to go and, uh, you know, he shows up at the home of Walter Lippmann and then he's going to these balls. And he was never in some ways contrary to popular impression. He was never that much of a partier per se, but he did like to, to socialize and to be out with people. And he had the opportunity to do it here. And it was a, it was a sort of magical time for a lot of people because it was a, a transition to a, a, a new administration, a new party, a new generation. A lot of people who had served in the war with, not necessarily with Kennedy, but, but you know, had served, were now coming into Washington to be part of this thing. I think it was, it was a really exciting time for, um, for a lot of people. And, and this inaugural address was a, was a perfect sort of, what should I say, it captured what he and what others hoped that it would uh, achieve. You mentioned that Sorensen loved those reflective or comparative phrases, and, and the speech is really littered with them. There's also a lovely metaphor in the speech too, isn't there? When you think of a phrase like, um, I think he was speaking about the independence movements, um, really choosing between communism and, and otherwise, um, using an ex a phrase like, those who foolishly sought power riding the back of the tiger ended up inside. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, uh, it's, it's a great... It's, it's, a it's so good. And what we could do for way too much time, Tony, is we could, you know, bat various uh, passages back and forth. But I got to just tell you, unless we lose the opportunity, that I also really like this. And I think this is this is Sorensen, at least from what I've been able to see. Though, again, Kennedy was a very good critic in the sense that he would insert a word here, he would change a word there. He was a good copy editor, good editor of his own, you know, what were his own speeches ultimately. But I like this right here. All this will not be finished in the first hundred days nor will it be finished in the first thousand days, nor in the life of this administration, nor even perhaps in the lifetime of, in our lifetime on this planet. But let us begin. That last sentence is really powerful. And of course, we know that his administration would only last a thousand days. So 
that use of a thousand days adds, you know, has enhanced um, power for us. But again, this is another uh, another line that I just find astounding. When I was growing up, Frederick, um, one of the books that peered down at me my whole childhood was called uh, A Thousand Days. Is it? Was it called? It was A Thousand Days, Arthur Schlesinger Jr. Yeah. Yeah, that was the oh, one. Oh man! And, uh, as a it's great, is it a great book? You, how would you rate the Kennedy biographies, given that you've, you're writing two of the important ones? Yeah, I think Schlesinger's book, it's, you know, he's an insider. It's um, maybe a little bit hagiographic. Hey, it's, it's, I wouldn't call it a biography per se. And he probably would not have called it a biography. So we shouldn't judge it accordingly. But I think A Thousand Days is still on the short shelf of essential Kennedy books. Sorensen's book that we all sh- already mentioned, Kennedy. Also important. By the way, the two of them were kind of competing with one another in 64 and 60, early 65 to see who would bring out their book first. Uh, there was a kind of a race between Kennedy and Sorensen. And of course, they both produced, I think, excellent works. I can't recall now which one actually made it to the finish line first, but uh, really important works. And I would say, you know, what's surprising, Tony, about the scholarship and one of the, or the literature and one of the reasons I'm writing this biography is that though we have endless books on the Kennedy presidency, on this or that policy, say on the Cuban Missile Crisis. We have books on the nature of his marriage with Jackie, etc. family members. We actually have remarkably few biographies. And I would say we don't have even one that attempts to do what I'm doing here, which is a, a kind of life and times that is comprehensive, that tries to contextualize Kennedy's life by also looking at other important developments, World War II, obviously, the early Cold War, McCarthyism, civil rights, Vietnam in the next volume in particular, uh, the space race. You know, there's so much that happens in his 46 years. He only lived to be 46. I'm trying to do what, what I don't think previous biographers, worthy though they are, and I've benefited from using them, I don't think they've quite attempted that. In terms of this speech, it comes to a, a brilliant conclusion as well. And it, I think it, it fills the hearts of people who listen to it. And, and, and many people rate it as the greatest American speech. Yeah. Um, do, you think it, do you think it's Kennedy's greatest speech? You would have heard so many of his. Um, wh- uh, where, would, where would you put uh, it? I mean, I, it, that's a really interesting uh, question, actually. I would probably have to put it first. I mean, I just think it's close to a kind of perfect speech in many ways. He gave a, an extraordinary a speech at American University in 1963 in, in June, in which he basically calls for a new, a new relationship with the Soviet Union, a lowering of tensions. And that's a, a, that's a beautiful speech. There are lesser known speeches. There's one he gives in Seattle in uh, November of 1961, so still in his first year that I think is remarkable in reminding Americans that not every world problem is amenable to an American solution, that our, that our power, as great as it is, is ultimately limited, that we make up a, a small part of the world's population, and people on some level want to figure out their own solutions to their own problems, and etc. That's a powerful speech. And, you know, I will say that some of his early speeches, which I write about in volume one, there's a Harvard commencement address in 1956 in which he talks about what 
both politicians and intellectuals need to do to, to learn from one another that I think has great power. And he concludes that speech, I think it's maybe in the last few lines, by saying that, you know, if, if, if more politicians knew a little bit of poetry and more poets understood a bit more about politics, um, you know, the world would be a better place. Uh, so there are speeches all the way through that I think are, that are quite remarkable. That's a beautiful reflective line as well. He loved those reflective lines. He did. And the um the ones that bounce back on themselves. And, and it's funny when you mentioned poetry, I was going to mention my second favorite JFK speech, which is the Amherst oh, speech. I almost, um, I almost brought it up. Yeah. Yeah, that's the that's the one where he talks about Robert Frost, yeah. who is obviously a massive figure for him. Yeah. He he got Robert Frost to speak on this um inauguration day. The first time there was a, a poem at an inauguration. And so he obviously worshipped Robert Frost. He, and, and, um, he did. And, you know, there's a good little anecdote there, uh, which is that Frost, when he got to the podium at the inauguration, the glare from the sunshine and the snow was such that he couldn't read the speech that was in front of him. <laughs> and I'd, I haven't detected panic. I'd like to see the video, see if I can sort of look more closely to see what this great poet does at that moment because he can't actually read it what he delivers instead is a, a different poem altogether one that he had memorized and i'm sure you know he probably had a lot of his poems memorized but i think without missing much of a beat the the great poet um, you know saved saved the day it's pretty interesting and he was old then, wasn't he? He yeah, was yeah. in these seventies or yeah. He or was he was uh, long in the tooth, uh, but he pulled it off. And yeah, it, it's I, I think the Amherst speech that you mentioned is should be must be on any sort of top three or four list for Kennedy. I'm I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it. And it's also in this era where politicians seem to you know I'm obviously very interested in the arts yeah. and. Just to have a president say, yeah. to read poetry and yeah. speak about poetry and talk about the importance of the inner life, you know, that's... Um, I think it's a, it's a remarkable thing. And he, for much of his career, uh, maybe this shows that there's, well, I don't know what it shows, but for much of his career, he was not particularly keen on people knowing that he liked poetry and that he memorized poetry and that he liked to read poetry in his fair, spare time. Jackie has talked a little bit about this, I think, or she did talk about it in some of the interviews, that her husband was not really all that interested in having people know about that. So, um, you know, maybe it suggests that, that even then, though he was much more willing to talk about it than maybe later politicians were, there was a sense that, well, somehow it's not the, the manly thing or it's not something that I want to, you know, fully advertise to people. And what about the line, the famous line, which to some extent I think um, is quoted so often that it does a disservice to the rest of the speech. You know, it's almost like it's the only line that anyone mm -hmm. wants to deal with. But, but is there a story around that line? Well, I think the main story for me um, about that line is that not only in that first campaign, 1946, but that in various other speeches, you see that basic sentiment reflected. And in fact, uh, he probably owes a debt, Kennedy does, to his headmaster at Choate, because his headmaster had a version of that line for the students. Uh, and I don't know if it's exactly this, but it was basically, ask not what Choate can do for you, ask what you can do for Choate. So, uh, you know, not words exactly the same 
but that excuse me that was the basic sentiment and so the thing that's maybe most striking about the 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 line for me is that it does harken back to early Kennedy speeches, again, long before Ted Sorensen is in the picture. And it again underscores this idea that it's very much Kennedy himself reflected in the inaugural address. I will also say that this is a sentiment that comes from his parents, uh, at least in part. His parents, and this is very much to their credit, complicated people, Joseph and Rose Kennedy, uh, and I, I write about them at length in the book, it's to their credit that they told their nine children early and often that you've got to give something back, that public service is something that's important. Uh, I mean, J- John F. Kennedy was wealthy as a young man. He could have been a, you know, he could have just been a playboy. He could have been a, a beachcomber. He could have been a slacker. But I think in part because of his parents' urgings and especially his mother's, this is something that he grew up with, this idea you know, you should ask what you can do for your community. And I think that it helps to account for the, the power that he used or the, the inclusion in the speech and the particular emphasis that it's gotten. And it does give credence to the idea that it's not just a, a Sorensen line that he, that he parroted. Right. I, I, I had a guest on last week's podcast, uh, Don Watson. He relayed that Ted Sorensen used to say when he was asked if he, if he wrote the line, mm-hmm. Um, he'd say, "Ask not." <laughs> is that is that true? <laughs> I, I actually have not heard that. I think that's, I think that's really interesting. I mean, the other thing, the other thing that's worth noting about the line is that it was politically shrewd. I think this is sometimes forgotten when we reflect on that particular passage, because I think the line, the notion, you know, "Ask not what your what your country can do for you," it spoke to liberals to Democrats and and to liberals within Kennedy's own party who shared his belief in public service, who liked the idealism that's at the heart of the the phrase. But it also spoke to conservatives who were perhaps wary of government handouts, who were suspicious of anything that smelled of of, of big government or of having the government step in and, and do everything for us. I think they too could could get something from this passage that works. Now, what I don't yet know, Tony, is whether that politically shrewd dimension factored into the inclusion. Uh, were they thinking, were Kennedy and, and Sorensen thinking that, yeah, you know what, this can work in a more sort of bipartisan way? That I don't know, but I think it had that effect. You talk about your parents in Sweden hearing the speech yeah. and and being kind of wrapped up in this in this fairy tale did it did it go down just to smash straight from the start was there, was there any were there were there dissenters or was it just a, a hugely positive reception? I, my sense is you know again preliminary maybe if if you're interested i can come back on your podcast with you in a few years when we publish volume two but my, my preliminary sense is that this was really well received we should note though this is this is an important point that and maybe it also speaks to our current moment. Even if our divisions are deeper today in the United States, you know the cleavages are deeper. The, the partisanship is more bitter. We should remember that Kennedy won a razor thin victory against Nixon. That he entered office during a time of uh, division in the United States. We should remember that Kennedy, from day one, and probably 
in terms of the response to this address, had a lot of opposition. That there were people from the beginning, right-wing observers, some of them telling falsehoods, thinking of him as a kind of stooge for the Kremlin. Other people thought he was the Antichrist. There was a certain, you know, a heavy anti-Catholic tenor to a lot of these criticisms. And so I'm sure that there were people, and I'll see, I'll find this in my research, who maybe out of the kind of mainstream of the media, mainstream of the press, were critical of the, of the speech. But for the most part, part, I think people gave it high marks for all the reasons you and I have just discussed in terms of its power, its concision, uh, the elegance of the language, and the, the, the delivery. And if we think of there being two creative forces for that speech in in, in Kennedy and Sorensen, obviously one of them was uh, torn away in the worst possible way in 1963, which left Sorensen. Um, do you have a sense of how it left Sorensen? Was it, was he? What happened with his career and and what happened with him personally? I mean, I, I yeah, it's 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 hard to know. I, I recently received an email from his widow, his second wife, and you know, from her and from others, I've gotten the sense that uh, his relationship with JFK defined him for forevermore. He remained obviously active in Democratic Party circles. He wrote well-received books. Uh, he was an, a, a person of influence within the party uh, and outside the party. He had a somewhat rocky relationship with Jackie Kennedy, but I think later on, you know, they, um, and you see this in some of the early interviews uh, that Jackie gave, including a, a remarkable set of interviews with Arthur Schlesinger Jr. in 1964, soon after the assassination, in which he's critical of Sorensen. But later on, I think they patched things up. So he's, you know, he, he uh, I think he's, he's going to be forever, uh, and he would have himself forever associated himself with Kennedy. That was that kind of a, uh, a relationship. We should also note, by the way, that though this is very much a joint effort by the two of them, there were, there were interesting little sort of inputs, if I can put it that way, from, from one or two others. An interesting one, for example, is that John Kenneth Galbraith, they had an early version of the speech in which they referred to joint ventures. And Galbraith said, that sounds like a mining company. And so what they changed was it became a host of cooperative ventures. Walter Lippmann, this this may be from Sorensen's book. I can't remember where I first saw this, but Lippmann, because of Lippmann's input, the phrase, those nations who make themselves our enemy was changed to those nations who would make themselves our adversary. So it was Lippmann's suggestion that they change enemy to adversary. It's kind of interesting. So yes, it's principally Kennedy and Sorensen, but with little tweaks here and there. Somebody, maybe you know, I can't remember, but somebody suggested that the phrase, the torch of liberty has been passed. Somebody said, no, you don't really need liberty in there. Just say the torch has been passed. And it's, of course, much stronger, much better to just say the torch has been passed. Uh, I don't think that was either Kennedy or Sorensen, but I'm not certain about that. Um, it is interesting. I mean, as we sort of celebrate this speech and, and celebrate JFK as a politician, is, is it just sort of the rose-colored glasses of nostalgia or, or, or were things better? I mean, 
Trump's kind of a very obvious feeling that things are terrible, mm-hmm. but um, was was the whole art of politics more refined? You know, I think it was. Uh, I want to be careful because, yeah, there's certainly probably rose-colored glasses that we put on. And, you know, there were divisions in America then. Uh, there were, uh, you know, politicians really on both sides of the aisle who were pursuing their own best interests in, in sort of crass terms, not thinking about the country at large. This is, you know, one of the themes of his book, Profiles in Courage. Kennedy himself certainly made mistakes. Uh, and, um, you know, soon after this inaugural address that we're talking about today, he uh, okayed or he approved uh, the the Bay of Pigs uh, invasion Vietnam, I think, is going to be something that I deal with and is really problematic in terms of his policy decisions as as president. But I still want to believe that politics was treated more seriously, that there was a sense then that good faith bargaining between the poli- between the parties was essential to democracy, and you could at least have some bipartisan agreement. I think there was a sense that Kennedy himself preached that democracy requires an informed and engaged citizenry that understands the importance of, 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 of compromise in, in, in our politics, that you can proceed uh, in good faith. I think that was more shared. You know, there wasn't the influence of social media. Obviously, it didn't exist at the time. And so you didn't have this ability by blowhards, if I can call them that, to always question everything that any authority figure says. And I think, uh, I think in, it, for all the f- problems that we had in the United States, of course, it's long before I came on the scene, uh, yeah, it, it functioned better than it does uh, now. And we need to at least to some degree, it seems to me, come back to that notion. And I'll just say, if Joe Biden becomes the 46th president of the United States. And as you and I talk, that's still not clear. I do commend him for his belief, which I think is there. If you go back and look at Biden's career as a politician, and it's a long career, he believed in reaching across the aisle, as we say in American uh, speech. And he believed in making deals with people you might ordinarily have nothing to do with but if you can if you can reach agreements with them that are in the public interest, you should do so. I think he's going to be perhaps stymied if he becomes president because of the the climate that we're in. But I commend him for believing in that. And at some point, it seems to me we have to come back to that because democracy requires that from our from our politicians. Well, he doesn't have the glow of youth, but no. uh, he probably has a little bit of, of Kennedy in him. I mean, he's, sure. he's, he's he almost w- he would remember Kennedy and would would have been influenced. He was influenced, and I mean, the fact that that it's a fellow Catholic, uh, he's talked a little bit about this. How Kennedy, as a Catholic, first Catholic president, Biden would be the second. How Kennedy, when he was a young man, was a, a source of, of of inspiration for him and helped propel him on his way. I think that's pretty interesting. And yes, he would be, I guess he would be 78 uh, when he gives his inaugural address, which would make him the oldest elected president. JFK was the youngest elected president at 43. So there is that, you know, that huge age cap. But, you know, I guess I feel that if, 
if he's a political antique, Joe Biden, maybe in the current moment, that's to his credit. Uh, because he can try to help bring all of us back to an era in which the divisions were not as great uh, and in which you could actually have a more functioning uh, functioning government. Well, thank you so much, Frederick. What a fantastic interview. I'm going to play the whole speech now. Everyone should get out and read Volume 1. It's one of the best political biographies I've read. So many interesting stories and so many I hadn't heard about before. Can't wait for Volume 2 when you'll talk about this speech. Um, and, yeah, it's been a pleasure having you on. It's it's just been a pleasure. I feel, Tony, like I could speak another hour with you, but that would uh, exhaust uh, everybody involved except maybe me. But thanks so much for this. It's been great. Speakola. Well, what a great chat with Frederick Logerville. And he mentioned quite a few JFK speeches during the interview. And a lot of those are up on the speakola.com website. You'll find John F. Kennedy's American University speech. You'll find his Amherst speech. You'll find his Cuban Missile Crisis speech. You'll, of course, find the inaugural speech. I've put up a snippet from the fourth Nixon-Kennedy debate. They're all up on Speakola and well worth checking. Out. I mentioned in the intro that I first heard Frederick on the Dan Snow History Hit podcast, which is a beauty, I can tell you. Well, Dan Snow does one thing very well, which is he manages to ask, encourage, cajole, beg his audience to rate and review the podcast in the iTunes store in the review bit. You know, you go to the podcast and it says rate review and you put five stars on and you say how much you're liking it. And apparently that helps. I'm not sure how much it helps, but anyway, I'm going to do what Dan Snow's doing because he's been at it a fair bit longer than me. If you want to part with actual money this Christmas time, you can do that as well. You could buy one of my books. If you're an Australian and you like Aussie rules, you might like 1989, The Great Grand Final. I'll send you a copy for $35 within Australia, and I'll say that you paid the price the famous words from the famous speech, which was featured in episode two of this podcast from Alan Jeans. So, yep, I'll send it on and you can have a little note written in the front on your behalf and it's not a bad gift. Or if you've got little ones to buy for, I've got picture books really for all ages. I've got The Cow Tripped Over the Moon. I've got Hickory Dickory Dash. I've got Bar Bar Blue Sheep. I've got Humpty Dumpty Sat on the Slide. I've got Harry High Pants, I've got Emo the Emu, I've got a catalogue of picture books which you would be supporting me and the podcast and my family if you just write me an email, tony at tonywilson.com.au and I'll send you a signed book to Stocking Stuff this Christmas. Speech of the week time and no surprises for guessing what it's going to be. It is, of course, the inaugural speech of John F. Kennedy delivered at the Capitol on the 21st of January, 1961. You, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, do solemnly swear... I, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, do solemnly swear... That you will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. That I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of your ability, 
and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help you God. So help me God. President Johnson, Mr. Speaker, Mr. Chief Justice, President Eisenhower, Vice President Nixon, President Truman, Reverend Clergy, fellow citizens. We observe today not a victory of party, but a celebration of freedom, symbolizing an end as well as a beginning, signifying renewal as well as change. For I have sworn before you and Almighty God the same solemn oath our forebears prescribed nearly a century and three quarters ago. The world is very different now, for man holds in his mortal hands the power to abolish all forms of human poverty and all forms of human life. And yet the same revolutionary beliefs for which our forebears fought are still at issue around the globe. The belief that the rights of man come not from the generosity of the state, but from the hand of God. We dare not forget today that we are the heirs of that first revolution. Let the word go forth from this time and place to friend and foe alike that the torch has been passed to a new generation of Americans born in this century, tempered by war, disciplined by a hard and bitter peace, proud of our ancient heritage and unwilling to witness or permit the slow undoing of those human rights to which this nation has always been committed and to which we are committed today at home and around the world. Let every nation know, whether it wishes us well or ill, that we shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe to assure the survival and the success of liberty. This much we pledge and more. To those old allies whose cultural and spiritual origins we share, we pledge the loyalty of faithful friends. United, there is little we cannot do in a host of cooperative ventures. Divided, there is little we can do. For we dare not meet a powerful challenge at odds and split asunder. To those new states whom we welcome to the ranks of the free, 
we pledge our word that one form of colonial control shall not have passed away merely to be replaced by a far more iron tyranny. We shall not always expect to find them supporting our view, but we shall always hope to find them strongly supporting their own freedom and to remember that in the past those who foolishly sought power by riding the back of the tiger ended up inside. <laughs> to those people in the huts and villages of half the globe struggling to break the bonds of mass misery, we pledge our best efforts to help them help themselves. For whatever period is required, not because the communists may be doing it, not because we seek their votes, but because it is right. If a free society cannot help the many who are poor, it cannot save the few who are rich. <laughs> to our sister republics south of our border, we offer a special pledge to convert our good words into good deeds in a new alliance for progress to assist free men and free governments in casting off the chains of poverty. But this peaceful revolution of hope cannot become the prey of hostile powers. Let all our neighbors know that we shall join with them to oppose aggression or subversion anywhere in the Americas. And let every other power know that this hemisphere intends to remain the master of its own house. <laughs> to that World Assembly of Sovereign States, the United Nations, our last best hope in an age where the instruments of war have far outpaced the instruments of peace, we renew our pledge of support to prevent it from becoming merely a forum for invective, to strengthen its shield of the new and the weak, and to enlarge the area in which its writ may run. Finally, to those nations who would make themselves our adversary. We offer not a pledge, but a request that both sides begin anew the quest for peace. Before the dark powers of destruction, unleashed by science, engulf all humanity in planned or accidental self-destruction. We dare not tempt them with weakness, for only when our arms are sufficient beyond doubt can we be certain beyond doubt that they will never be employed. But neither can two great and powerful groups of nations take comfort from our present course, both sides overburdened by the cost of modern weapons, both rightly alarmed 
by the steady spread of the deadly atom, yet both racing to alter that uncertain balance of terror that stays the hand of mankind's final war. So let us begin anew, remembering on both sides that civility is not a sign of weakness and sincerity is always subject to proof. Let us never negotiate out of fear, but let us never fear to negotiate. Let both sides explore what problems unite us instead of belaboring those problems which divide us. Let both sides for the first time formulate serious and precise proposals for the inspection and control of arms and bring the absolute power to destroy other nations under the absolute control of all nations. Let both sides seek to invoke the wonders of science instead of its terrors. Together, let us explore the stars, conquer the deserts, eradicate disease, tap the ocean depth, and encourage the arts and commerce. Let both sides unite to heed in all corners of the earth the command of Isaiah to undo the heavy burdens and let the oppressed go free. And if a beachhead of cooperation may push back the jungle of suspicion, let both sides join in creating a new endeavor, not a new balance of power, but a new world of law where the strong are just and the weak secure and the peace preserved. All this will not be finished in the first 100 days, nor will it be finished in the first 1,000 days, nor in the life of this administration, nor even perhaps in our lifetime on this planet. But let us begin. In your hands, my fellow citizens, more than mine, will rest the final success or failure of our course. Since this country was founded, each generation of Americans has been summoned to give testimony to its national loyalty. The graves of young Americans who answered the call to service surround the globe. Now the trumpet summons us again, not as a call to bear arms, though arms we need, not as a call to battle, though in battle we are, but a call to bear the burden of a long twilight struggle, year in and year out, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, a struggle against the common enemies of man, tyranny, poverty, disease, and war itself. Can we forge against these enemies a grand and global alliance, north and south, 
east and west that can assure a more fruitful life for all mankind. Will you join in that historic effort? In the long history of the world, only a few generations have been granted the role of defending freedom in its hour of maximum danger. I do not shrink from this responsibility. I welcome it. I do not believe that any of us would exchange places with any other people or any other generation. The energy, the faith, the devotion which we bring to this endeavor will light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. My fellow citizens of the world, ask not what America will do for you, but what together we can do for the freedom of man. Finally, whether you are citizens of America or citizens of the world, ask of us here the same high standards of strength and sacrifice which we ask of you. With a good conscience, our only sure reward, with history the final judge of our deeds, let us go forth to lead the land we love, asking his blessing and his help, but knowing that here on earth, God's work must truly be our own. Well, that's it for another episode of Speak Ola. Can I give a shout out to some of the winners at the Australian Podcast Awards? We weren't eligible because I'd done five episodes by the cutoff date of the 1st of August. My sixth one came out on the 5th of August, which would have made me eligible. But congratulations to Tony Martin and Matt Dower at Sizzletown, one of my favorite podcasts, just hilarious. The Late Night Talkback Podcast. I'll meet you down at the Busted Nut for some of Dave Clacton's finest. Congratulations to Cecilia Ramsdale. She is one of the hosts of The Wellness Collective. They won in the entertainment category. And Zanro won as well in the best radio podcast with Take 5. So, well done, Zan. My thank yous for this episode. Well, thank you, Frederick Logeval. His books include Embers of War and most relevantly to today's chat, JFK, Coming of Age in the American Century, which came out just this year. And as you heard throughout our chat, he is underway with Volume 2 that will cover the presidential years. Thank you as well to Greenskin and Purple Skin Avocados, greenskinavocados.com.au. Thank you to David Bridie. I love my theme song so much. And David Bridie composed that. Thank you to everyone who's told a friend about the podcast. And it'd be even better if you told 
some massive Facebook forum like the New York Times podcast recommending forum that this is good. I'm not allowed to do it myself because they don't allow self-promotion. Please do visit the Speakola website. We've put up a few election 2020 speeches, including Trump's sook from the night and the day after. Corey Bush in Missouri comes to mind as a really good one. And I thought Joe Biden did well as well. Um, just maybe a relief to hear a president talk about someone else in a speech. It was incredible. I'll probably squeeze one more episode in this year. And as I said earlier, if you want to give us a positive review or write something nice on Facebook or Twitter, my advice is this. Ask not what your emerging arts and culture interview podcast can do for you. Ask what you can do for your emerging arts and culture interview podcast. Until next time, see you soon.